Broadcasting from occupied Tongva land in Long Beach, California. This is Wait, Why Am I Talking Podcast, a show about local current events with a socialist slant. Hey, Miles, how you doing? Hey, Vic. Uh, I'm all right. Still mostly living at home, and uh, I've got uh, been raising some plants. Uh, so home life is a little bit more green, but shit's still, still not that great on the streets. We still got police in the streets, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, brutalizations and murders so that ain't that good no doubt what's up jordan how you feeling today doing okay honestly a little tired because everybody in my neighborhood keeps setting off fireworks that are loud as like car bombs Mm. you know every time they do it i run out and i scream which cia cell is paying you Ah. you know what gladio program are you part of it's it's either unemployment or the cia it's i think it's equally likely you know Yo, you got to, like, when the rev comes, bro, it's going to be bombs going off all the time, man. That's how I look at it. I'm like, yo, the rev is here, bro. Go for it. Oh, man. Who knew this thing would be a little bit loud? Right? Yeah. (laughs) How about you, Vic? I'm good, man. I can't complain. Like, today's Father's Day. I'm going to the aquarium with my kid later, uh, doing some normal shit. And, yeah, trying to stay COVID-free. I got tested last week. I'm negative. And after all the protesting we've been doing and all the mutual aid we've been doing, so it feels good to be negative. And I just want to get back out there, knock on doors for Fatima, knock on doors for local candidates and get people fucking elected. I think now's the time to start thinking about building power after all the fucking stuff going on in the streets. And speaking of stuff going off in the streets, today's show topic, we're going to be talking about like Antifa as like a terrorist organization. You know, Antifa. They're listening right now. They plan all the actions. They buy all the bombs and Molotov cocktails. And they also train the cops and are in the government and run the government also. And we're going to talk about... Uh, Vic, be careful. Those are commanding officers you're I know. talking about. Oh, yes, yes. At the meeting tonight, I'm going to, like, you know, disavow yeah, don't, don't go so. over their heads, Vic. All right. <laughs> all right. And also, we're going to shout out 4th, the 4th Long Beach. They had great coverage about like kkk and lbpd connections and we're gonna be diving into that also and la county sheriff what's going on up there in victorville palmdale all that we're gonna have an interview with alia talking about like terrorism that we as the united states portray all around the country and how that's gonna intersect us what's going on here because all the tactics that they're using against these quote-unquote protesters where the fuck you think all that came from (laughs) all like tried and true techniques all right guys let's get into it dope i'm excited yeah Mm -hmm. let's do it let's do it antifa the fuck is antifa from my understanding it's like anti-fascist but like trump likes it it's very like online and so now I love the way the dude like takes stuff online and like morphs it into his messaging and pumps it out there. Cause like, yo, he can't designate Antifa as a terrorist organization, right? Am I wrong? So apparently no, but <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's such a, it's really unfortunate because some members of his base really like take it like a dog whistle. And there's been reports of people going camping yeah. with their family. Like uh-huh. being assaulted, yeah, and harassed, yeah, and but like it's so it's rhetorically dangerous. He doesn't have any like punch behind the law to do this, 
like those fucking tweets gets that fucking base riled up. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I find that claim interesting that he has no like legal, actual legal backing to do this because two reasons. A, that's never stopped government before. I mean, Good let's point. look at things like Cointelpro. I mean, factcheck.org is saying this, right? They're like, oh, there's no legal backing, but Cointelpro, things like that. And later with Alia, we're going to hear a little bit about the fact that like, sure, there's like only an international structure for this, but it used to be you needed to assign warrant to search a house. And then the Patriot Act came around, you know? Yep. So yeah, I think I, overly relying on the, the law protection. That's a good you know, point. I, I think like they can't do it now. Trump can't do it now. But I think rhetorically, it's so dangerous because really to accomplish anything in reality, you first have to put it out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like he's put it out there. And yeah, maybe at present, nothing can be done uh, overtly. But that doesn't mean something, as you said, is, isn't being done covertly or, or won't be done overtly in the future to qualify it as a terrorist organization. First, they came for the Antifas. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like priming the mind of the voters that like, yo, this is bad. This is bad. So in 15 years, when they start, you know, getting the anti-anti groups up, like people will be ready for it. That's crazy. But like, right. it does have a history, Miles. Where does it come from? Right. So I don't know. This, this isn't, I mean, well, firstly, I mean, we fought, many people, many organizations have fought against fascism in different parts of the world. But in trying to find some organizations that may be a little bit similar to what people have been seeing recently on the news, there's a group in Great Britain after World War II, a group of Jewish veterans and, and citizens who responded to the formation of a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment and fascist sentiment in Great Britain post-war. And, and they did that not, not by just making leaflets and railing against it and going through the proper channels, because I believe that the Jewish organizations at the time, they did try to approach the government to, to take like official action against this, to curtail really? the development and growth of fascism. Really? Lo and behold, they didn't really do anything. Oh. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, a surprise. Another surprise. Uh, uh, if only. So what ended up happening is a group of 43 people founded the Group of 43, which was an anti-fascist organization that eventually consisted of around 1,000 people and were active until 1950. But what they would do is go to any sort of fascist rallies in Great Britain and they would disrupt it. And what do I mean by disrupt? I don't Fuck mean go up. there, hold some signs. I mean, they'd go in there, destroy the stage, destroy the material <laughs> mechanisms by which they had to hold these rallies and beat people up if needed. So, this yeah. This is the real Antifa. <laughs> yeah. This was, this was uh, anti-fascism in Britain. And Britain's actually had a ton of anti-fascism in their history since World War II. Another example is the Battle of Lewisham in 1977, which were the National Front Organization, which is a neo-Nazi organization in, in Great Britain or a fascist organization in, in Great Britain. They marched. There was a march of like 500 people from New Cross to Lewisham. And some four to 5,000 people came to counter-protest. Hell yeah. And this resulted in street battles. And not only did it result in street battles, but it was also the first use by police of riot shields. 
Dude, that's oh, fucking boy. nuts. I was born in 76. This is how like recent history this shit is. This is well, recent history. Question, though. So you're talking about the group of 43 was an organized group of Jewish World War II veterans, right? So, for example, Trump's thing is like speaking about American Antifa as if it's like an organization. And the group of 43 was. But it seems like the Battle of Leshem was more like what we have today, which is just like a not organized group of 5,000 people just coming in, like taking the shit out of some fascists. Right. And and I think that so there's examples actually uh, after this where the anti-Nazi League was formed by the Socialist Workers Party hey, uh, in Britain. And they they employed lots of different tactics. They employed leafleting, propaganda, marches, counter protesting. But they also still did employ violent disruption of, of fascist activities. So I think that what's gained a lot of attention has been the tactics that do involve confrontation with fascists. Because yep. let's be real, like that's that's just a part of being anti-fascism. Anti-fascist. Yeah, that's a part of being human. Like, yo, violence fucking gets our attention. We know, yeah. like, yo, there's a commotion going on over there. What's that commotion going on? And then somebody standing on the side to be like, oh, those are some fascists, and they're getting their ass kicked. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of liberals right now are, you know, decrying the quote-unquote violence of you know some of the things going on with the uprising and it's like in minnesota i heard someone say for example well they were burning like i don't know an auto zone they were like yeah i'm doing this because nobody fucking pays attention unless i do you know like like you said vic like that's how people pay attention yeah that's how people pay attention but it, it it's also like these fascists often have ideologies that advocate for the compl- wholesale killing of people and like like we said with Donald Trump, right? He put out the idea. He created the mental space for activity that is qualified as anti-fascist to mm-hmm. be declared terrorist, right? So so as much as we like to say sticks and stones, you know, words can't hurt me. Sticks and stones may make break my bones and words can't hurt me, but like well, words create the yeah. space yeah. for people to come at you with sticks and stones and and kill you. So yeah. there's there's many tactics and I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the bad press, as it were, uh, for Antifa is the employment of this tactic. But let's be real. If you're against racism, in large part, you're most likely an anti-fascist. Yeah. No matter what you're comfortable doing. Exactly. And then it's like, yo, it is what it is. Yo, revolutionaries trying to fuck up and change the system, we are going to break shit. And I'm going to own the rioting, own the looting. Yes, we are out there rioting, looting, protests. Different forms of the same fucking language. We're trying to tell you something through these acts. And those acts are not moral or amoral. They are just the language that we're using to speak. So there is no morality to fucking burning down a target or smacking a pig to the fucking face. Because that pig is a representation of my oppression. Fuck that. That's where it stops. That's the whole thing. They're like, yo, this oppression stops? Yeah. So I'm going to push you off my neck, motherfucker, and I'm going to break that target. So what? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm rioting because I don't like the situation. All these people are on my side. The rioters are on my side, you know? And they're trying to divide us by saying a good protester and a bad protester. Fuck that. We are all in it together using different language to fucking make statements. I just wanted to say that out there about fucking good looting, bad protesters. Fuck all that. The same shit. We're all in it together. You're not separating us. Nope. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about this on this very podcast after the big 
quote unquote looting event in Long Beach, like they talked about outside agitators and shit. And everybody keeps talking about anarchists. And like, it's so funny because like this, this Antifa terrorist thing came a little bit before or a little bit too late because like everybody had switched to being like, actually, it's anarchists. Like they keep like, like they just kind of make up these labels. And, you know, let's let's remember that Antifa, we talked about this, but Antifa is not an organization. They don't have fucking membership roles. They don't have meetings. They don't no have dues. dues. It's a Nothing. strategy. It's just people who show up. I want to bounce off what you're saying a little bit too, Vic. It's like, if people are rioting, uh, not not rioting, but looting, if people are looting, like something's fucking wrong. Yeah. Because they feel the only way for them to get certain things in our society is to step through a broken window yeah. of a shop. Mm-hmm. You know, so so why why is the, the question shouldn't be or or the statement, the discourse shouldn't be, you know, looting is bad. It should be why the why do people feel the need to loot in the first place? Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, as socialists, you know, I think we're gonna come up with uh some statements and theories around capitalism, but you know, the broader discourse, you know, has ignored that question. Exactly. Been completely ignored. Uh-huh. And just just ask that question right there. And if they're not asking that question, bad faith, disingenuous, get the fuck out my face. Nothing's going to be moved forward by having a conversation with that person. If they start with the framework of like, well, you need to separate the good from the bad looters. Fuck that. They need to understand it's all the same shit. Now we could have a conversation. Definitely. So to tie it into an internationalist perspective with some material analysis, we have a international studies expert, Alia, for our next interview. We have Muslim American organizer and international studies expert Alia here. Hey, Alia, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thanks Glad for coming to be on. Here. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited about this. Um, I've always wanted to know what being on a podcast was like. I just wanted to say, you know, while I am an organizer and you know, I I got an international studies degree from my undergrad, but in no way am I you know, an expert. I'm just somebody who cares about these issues a lot. And I take a lot of time to study about them and learn about them and and really read the experts. So I'm going to try my best to cite my sources when I'm talking today, give you references to some of the books that I've read that have delved, you know, deep into these subjects. You know, I just want the audience to know that um, if there's anything that I say that's correct, it's because of the work of other people. Um, and if there's anything that I say that's wrong or inaccurate, that that comes from me. Spoken like a true academic. <laughs> Thank you. So the war on terror is usually explained as a clash of civilizations in the West. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Sure. Um, so the idea of the clash of civilizations comes from um, a very racist man named Samuel Huntington. And he wrote that um, the world is divided up into separate civilizations. One of them is the West, um, which he belongs to. And one of the main civilizations that the West is in perpetual conflict with is um, the civilization that lies in roughly the area that we know as the Middle East today, or, you know, Southwest Asia, or the place where 
Islam or Muslims is. Um, and we know that that where, where Muslims live across the world, I mean, it, Muslims live in every country around the world, but he believed that there were these civilizational blocks. And the reason that these two civilizations in particular were in conflict with each other is because they had essential characteristics that made them fundamentally different from each other. So the West was all about, you know, progress and modernity and being very enterprising and being individualistic, um, whereas in other civilizations, um, but especially the, you know, Islamic civilization that there was more of this collectivist idea and that people were backwards. They resisted modernity. They resisted progress. Um, you know, they, they even, you know, they didn't believe in Christianity, nor were they secular. So the key thing about this is that if you're going to essentialize, you know, a billion people, minimum a billion people, you can't. I mean, that's racist in and of itself because it denies the humanity of people because people are multifaceted. They aren't just one way um, and they don't just have the same ideology just because they have some sort of identity that they that they share in common. If you're going to essentialize another group of people, you can't do so without also essentializing yourself as good. You essentialize them as bad and evil but you're also essentializing yourself as good. Um, and that's not fair to yourself either because you're saying that you have to be one way. And it's not true that people in the West are all the same or have the same ideologies. It's just not true. It's interesting. I've heard that term before, but it's interesting to know the exact academic origin of that idea. Can you give us some specific examples or historical context for that? Sure. So, so people in power in the West um, who subscribe to this idea of a clash of civilizations essentially are the ones that are responsible for, you know, exploring, quote unquote, you know, the new world and establishing colonies and um, creating institutions and systems to oppress non-white or non-Western people around the world. And, um, if you understand that people in power are invested in this idea of essentializing other groups of people um, to always, you know, exist in conflict with Western ideals and Western people, then you'll understand that people in power will have to replicate that argument over and over throughout history. So the war on terror is one of the more modern or contemporary examples of how people in power, in this case, you know, people who run the United States government um, are replicating this clash on civilizations. They sow conflict in other parts of the world intentionally, not because there's actually people out there who want the West to crash and burn, um, but because conflict is, is created in these parts of the world. And I know that that sounds confusing because you see these clips of you know, people from Al-Qaeda or from ISIS who talk about wanting to destroy the West. And, you know, I just want folks to understand that that is actually a response to the way that the U.S. military has um, wreaked havoc in those reasons and not 
and that that's not the origin of the conflict that there's just people over there who hate us because we're the opposite of them um so i can you know of course go a little bit deeper into that but i just want to say that if you're trying to understand you know the ideology of groups like isis or al-qaeda that's not really what i was planning to talk about today i mean there are others who talk about how their ideologies have formed like um, mark jurgensmeyer in terror in the mind of god i recommend that book and then there's also um a book called how to win a cosmic war by reza uslan which is also explains how these groups develop worldviews and ideologies where they think that they um are in this fight for good and evil and um how those types of ideologies form in response to some of the like material physical violence that has been um done on them through like the u.s military for example so um that's you know if you want to understand how those groups formed and the ideas that they formed around but what i'm trying to explain today is um how the u.s military or even other militaries other western militaries around the world um use the word terrorism to describe the things that other groups do and um to justify their presence and their and their violence in other parts of the world so that brings up the point that a lot of people on the left have a vague understanding that the united states definition of what is a terrorist organization is pretty arbitrary for example the united states funding the taliban during the um, soviet occupation of afghanistan that type of thing yes exactly so what i want folks who are listening to understand is that um there are a lot of reasons why the u.s government uses the term terrorism um like you said it can be an arbitrary term and it can also be an intentional term um at the same time it's quite an intellectually lazy term to use on their part but it's also a productive um tool that they use too productive in the sense that it does something it accomplishes something to call a group a terrorist organization so what i mean by that is your example is a great one we um or our government funded the taliban during the soviet occupation of afghanistan and that was very intentional and productive it literally put weapons in people's hands to fight the soviets and that was useful because at that geopolitical historical moment we were in the middle of a cold war and the soviets were our enemy so in doing so it was productive it materially changed the geopolitical landscape to satisfy the american agenda now later on when the taliban um kind of changed course then and the soviet threat was gone right know. exactly then all of a sudden they're labeled a terrorist organization because now they have all this infrastructure to operate as an organization um and do things against our military that you know our military has to fight them so now they're a terrorist organization and the thing that's key is that you know we always say that um you don't negotiate with terrorists and that's key because if this group of people if we were able to negotiate with them and talk to them about transferring arms to them in one decade, but in another decade, we're not able to speak with them or have any some sort of diplomatic contact with them, that makes them 
outside that puts but pushes them outside of our world so um they're just essentially evil and they're essentially evil now because it's of use to us for them to be so um so that was a great example so thank you for bringing that up there are there are other groups um who we've labeled terrorist organizations as well so for example hamas in gaza in in palestine um that is labeled a terrorist organization by our government and hezbollah in lebanon that's also considered a terrorist organization what would you say are the real reasons that these organizations are declared terrorist organizations sure so these groups have formed because of the geopolitical factors surrounding um surrounding them so um in both Hamas and Hezbollah, for example, actually exist because the state of Israel exists. Um, they exist as a response to the West prop propping up the state of Israel. So Hamas, um, you know, the way that Hamas and Hezbollah are depicted in the media are, you know, that they are suicide bombers and they um, they blow up innocent people. And I'm not here to say that they're that that hasn't happened because it has but i want folks to understand that as organizations there's only factions and wings of those organizations that do things like that as a whole these organizations exist to do something else and it's not to rain terror on innocent people hamas is actually a political party and they hold seats in government in gaza and Hezbollah, same thing. They're a political party. They have a wing that is militant, um, but they're a political party. They have seats in the Lebanese parliament. Okay, they have um, their own media networks. They have their own community programs. They have their own education programs, health clinics. Um, you know, so ha you know, so have you. So they are community organizations in a sense that provide a lot of different types of functions and the reason that they're considered dangerous is not just because they have a militant wing but it's because they do all of those things because they provide services to people in place of their governments because neoliberal states retreat from the lives of their citizens groups like these form and they fill in the gaps and they take care of themselves I find it interesting that you say that because domestically in the United States, the Black Panthers, part of the reason they were such a threat is they did have a militant wing for sure, but they also were providing... Their breakfast program. Yeah, they had community programs. Right. Um, and it seems like that's a lot of the same threat that the United States is like exactly. identifying. And you would think like, you know, why is it such a threat if communities take care of themselves? The reason that it's a threat is because neoliberal states have retreated from the lives of their people, and they do so in order for those services to be privatized, for people, mm. for capitalists to make money off of them. Mm. So if communities are feeding themselves, if they're feeding their own children, there's no need for a corporation to sell shitty breakfast food to public schools for them to serve to kids that they have to pay for and get into lunch debt for. There's no reason for that if the kids are being fed. But yeah. so the reason that these things are a threat, not just the militancy, but these organizations sustaining their communities is because 
the things that they do can no longer be privatized and somebody can't make money off of it anymore. And it's the same um, in other parts of the world. When we were occupying Iraq, this is a really important example. And you can read more about this in The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. She's amazing. But basically, when the United States military occupied Iraq, um, there was a debathification process. And what that means is that the political party who was running the Iraqi government, um, they were the Ba'ath Party, and mm -hmm. they were a secular nationalist party. Yeah. So everybody who worked um, in public positions, they all lost their jobs because the occupation authority was debathifying the Iraqi government, meaning that anybody that was in the government before the invasion cannot have a government job again um, because their party's philosophy is what led to, you know, I don't know, Saddam being in power. So all of those people lost their jobs. And what we saw was that a lot of them um, ended up joining sectarian militias um, because everything was going to hell. And the only thing that people could do was they kind of just banded together along sectarian lines. So what I mean by that is kind of by um, groups joining Sunni Muslim, you know, communities and militias and organizations and some groups joining Shia, like militant organizations. And they did that because they felt the need to protect their communities and provide services and um, clothing and education and food to their communities as everything was going to hell because the U.S. occupation authority wasn't, you know, providing any, any of those things yeah. for people. And the funny thing, and Naomi Klein talks about this, is that, um, you know, the people that Bush appointed to, like, run the occupation authority, I mean, they were conservatives, obviously. So their whole thing was, like, we're not going to put social programs in place to, like, replace um, Saddam's government. Like, we're going to let everything be privatized. And so they promised that all of these like private sector jobs would flow would flow into Iraq. And all of those people who lost their jobs, they should have been able to get those jobs, right? But they never came. And people actually enriched themselves off of the occupation. Um, I mean, Dick Cheney literally enriched himself off of it. Mm. Um, and all Definitely. of the companies that sell bombs and weapons and missiles, like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and Raytheon and all of them, they enriched themselves off of this um, and they continue to. So the key thing is that, you know, you don't have to ask why these things happen. Why does the American government have a problem with groups providing social programs? They have a problem with it because that means that rich capitalist assholes can't come in and make money off of them. Definitely. And switching gears a little bit, the United States Justice Department recently declared Antifa the concept itself as a terrorist organization mm -hmm. applying this lens how does that fit into how they've been doing this internationally for quite a long time mm -hmm. yeah um you know i wish i could say i knew more about antifa but i know that antifa is not an organization there are individual people who you know are trying to resist fascism and they belong to this idea of being anti-fascism um but they're not an organized group and the reason that it's kind of comical to watch people in the U.S. government um, declare it as a terrorist organization is because it just shows how little invested they are in actually like researching the facts 
they're not actually interested in understanding who is a member of these organizations, what drives people to be members of these organizations, what are the social problems that lead to this. Um, But they know very well that like fascism is is alive in the United States, right? Um, In fact, they don't have a problem with it because it it upholds their power. The reason that police departments and even individual white supremacists who, you know, shoot up places don't get called terrorists, even though what they do is literally terror. It's the same definition of terror. Um, The difference is that their violence supports the power of the state, whereas Mm. the violence of others um, is to the state's detriment. So everybody, you know, it doesn't matter what department you know, of the bureaucracy of the United States government you're in, whether you're the president, whether you're his advisors, whether you're the Pentagon or the Department of Defense or Department of Justice or the State Department. Everybody in the state coalesces around these ideas about who is a terrorist organization and who isn't. So they don't actually need to understand um, what is prompting people to like fight fascists, whether like it's individual fascist people or it's like fascist police, for example, um, they don't actually care. They're just trying to create this output that labels them as dangerous, so that they can justify, you know, destroying them. Basically, well, I, I find that to be interesting because it seems like, based on what you said, it's a kind of shift in even how they normally operate, where you know, organizations that have a, a community aid and self-support component are most threatening. And it's a little confusing as to whether part of this has to do with the fact that like leftist organizations, especially with COVID, have been stepping up to do community aid and mm-hmm. mutual aid work. And, you know, using black bloc tactics and some group, not groups, but people who go out and do like Antifa actions do use violence sometimes to defend themselves. But I, I have to wonder if the mutual aid which is a more recent thing on the left is part of what's playing into Mm -hmm. them officially being declared Mm -hmm. terrorists. I think that's, you know, I think that's spot on. And I'm interested to see, you know, as the situation continues to unfold, um, as fascism becomes bolder and bolder, how this will kind of evolve. um, And we'll have to keep a close eye on that. Um, I think another useful tool is, you know, whenever an entity of the United States government comes out with some sort of declaration like this, um, they'll come out with their reports or whatever. And so a useful tool is Michel Foucault um, developed this concept of performing a discourse analysis. So when, you know, a text comes out or a document comes out, what you want to do is you want to analyze the discourse of the text and see who does this help? Who Mm. does this hurt? Who keeps power Mm -hmm. by you know what is this what are the implications of this text what does it justify because you you should never you should always take them with a grain of salt you should never assume that anything that's produced by the state is factual and objective you should always assume that it serves to that it serves an agenda and that it's incredibly biased should always assume that so discourse analysis um that is a really important tool. Definitely. That's it for my questions. Is there any other, anything else you want to say? Um, I mean, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, you know, this all really hits close to home. 
I'm not just interested in these topics because, you know, because it's interesting. I, the reason that I was drawn to understand this and felt like I had to understand this was because, you know, I grew up as a young Muslim American in a, you know, a very heightened context of Islamophobia. So for those of us who feel like we, I feel like I didn't have a choice but yeah. to understand these things Definitely. because I always feel like people come at me and um, ask me all these questions like, oh, what do you think of Israel? What do you think of like the Muslim Brotherhood? What do you think of what's going on in Syria? And I'm, I'm, I'm expected mm -hmm. to be an expert, you know? Yeah. And there's this assumption that I, I know what's going on because I'm connected to it. Um, and that's just not the case. So I felt like I had to become an expert so that I had something to say back. And, you know, that, that's not really fair either. But I hope yeah. that with what I have learned that I can share it and that people can, um, can understand these things more. So I am going to, um, you know, give y'all a list of the books that I mentioned. Yeah, we can put that in the show notes. Yeah, in the description of the podcast. And I highly recommend them. They're really great um, to understand these things more. Sure, thanks. This has been really informative. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Then I found God in a jail cell. Yankee had the kufi on top. Still dealing with these goofy ass cops. Cause I like Islam, they think I build bombs. I would quit, but too bad, cause I is strong. I was doing lines, I was drinking wine. No pork on my fork, no swine. When I dine, I'm from cop killer queens, kill a cop, and it's fine. I read pigs are haram in the book, that's divine. All right, that was a dope interview, man. Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. Thank you to Alia for that informative interview. And we're going to bring it back to the local again. Always local. Talking about, so we've been talking about fascism, right? Uh, and, and, and the race, racism as an endemic problem, a problem in the United States for years. And recently, Fortha, a publication in Long Beach, independent, independent publication in Long Beach, has published a series of exposés about Long Beach Police Department's relationship to the KKK. Uh-oh. No. What? No. Wait, wait. Law enforcement has relationships with the KKK? That's the first I've ever heard of that. No way. Can you please tell me more? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Fortha, with the help of some elected Janine Pierce, I believe, uh, received information that an independent report uh, on the history of the police department looked to scrub their relationship with the local KKK chapter. They found that their ledgers for the KKK had the names of numerous LBPD officers. Fuck. On the books. On the books. Uh-oh. Scrubbing it away. Scrubbing away our, our, our history. Of cooperation. Well, this is interesting because this was part of Rex Richardson's, Councilmember Rex Richardson's thing for the Everyone In initiative, which is kind of, I mean, there's a lot to discuss there, but for the most part, like, just kind of like liberal reports on, like, inequality rather than trying to solve it. But he legitimately was trying to, like, document this history, not this specifically, but, like, the history of oppression in Long Beach, and they specifically are trying to get it taken out of the public record. Yeah, that's right. We want, we want to know, but not everything. Not everything that makes us look super bad, right? Not everything. We want to talk about inequality. Like, yeah. it just, it exists. Exactly. And that's like the step past that a lot of liberals don't want to take. They don't want to take that step. Or they, their brains start breaking once they start thinking. Fuck it. I, d I don't want to ignore this because it's, it's pretty damning. But 
also two years later after sort of that revelation had come to light and that was in 1922 that they found sort of the ledgers two years later multiple newspapers reported on allegations that lbpd officers in clan garb had tortured three black teens on the outskirts of town so i mean the mechanisms of of really just torturing and brutalizing the black community yeah, used, they used to be in line with the KKK. And now they just throw on the uniform, right? Yeah, and that's the whole thing. We talk about culture. We keep talking about culture, 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 culture. Yo, in 1922, this organization is tied up with the fucking Klan. They got their names on the books next to Klan. Like, it's literally on the books. There's fucking proof. And you can't tell me this culture is devoid from being cops. Because, yo, explain to me when this reckoning happened. When did Long Beach sit down and say, hey, we need to address this KKK problem? They never did. Because you know why? Because the city of Long Beach and most of the fucking government institutions do not believe this, that black lives matter, period. Because if black lives matter, they would have done something about it. Shit would have went down. You know what I mean? But it didn't. It didn't. That's what I was saying in that city council meeting. It's like, yo, the proof is in the pudding. What has changed? I see it's wrong. You see it's wrong. Okay, what has changed? Oh, nothing has changed? We know what time it is. Yeah, and, and I mean, what incentive do they have, right? Because uh, looking at all the money that electeds have gotten, another fourth article has shown that the police union, they gave 500 grand to Mayor Garcia since 2015. Hmm? Yes, and they also helped them make other super PACs. So they give him money directly. They form another organization to give him money also. It's fucking ridiculous. All from the POA. Where the fuck are they getting all this money? Well, and now they're talking about the reconciliation sessions. The first step is like even acknowledging this stuff, like the history of racism. But they're, they're not acknowledging this, right? They're acknowledging like, uh, there has been bad stuff. Like, they're very vague. I mean, for example, Don Modkins of Black Lives Matter Long Beach said about this, like, let's acknowledge our history, our full history. And part of that is the past relationships between the police department and the Klan. And like, they're not acknowledging that the city. Yeah. So until that is acknowledged, how the fuck are we supposed to move forward? Or me as a black dude to be like, oh, the city cares. If they're not talking about the KKK and the cops and this shit is on fucking record. Guess what? I'm not trying to hear y'all because you ain't you ain't saying something I'm, that's going to change anything. Doesn't look good. Doesn't look good for their careers. To acknowledge the existence and relationship with the KKK. Wait, yeah. in 2020 or in 2040? You Thank know what you. I mean? Yeah. When kids look back on this, when I'm teaching my daughter history, I was like, yeah, these Long Beach City Council are a bunch of fucking... All right, I'm not even going to say it. All right. Uh, we can say it. They're spineless. <laughs> spineless. <laughs> and won't, st- won't stand up a- for, yeah. for what's obviously right. Mm-hmm. Obviously Definitely. right. Straight up. So, Miles, can you give us a little bit of of history here about like i think people know generally about the kkk but like what is their modern iteration oh yeah sure their modern their modern iteration of the kkk i mean well i, I think the kkk still still exists as an institution but if we if we just look at in terms of the the so I, I think earlier in our podcast we do we do talk about fascism and we talk a little bit about the police and fascism in the police and this the research that's been done by Fortha I mean it's really great because it shows like historically it has been in there and 
it's important, I think, to appreciate that the the history of the United States that is founded is founded right on that inequality, on on the enslavement of black people, and then the maintenance of black people as a second class to steal the wealth from them. So, I mean, as the KKK isn't legitimate by most standards in a lot of different places. So you can't just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's occurred in history where the KKK won't be accepted. So what is the legitimate mechanism by which wealth is still stolen from the black community and the black community is oppressed? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the police. It's the police. Um, and, and I think like there's the history of the police emerging out of slave patrols in the U.S., but there's also a really other origins to the police, specifically in colonialism. British colonialism and then American colonialism, where in, in our colonial ventures in the Philippines, in British ventures in, in um, Ireland, in Israel, in Palestine today, these, this is where this came from. And the main point of the police is to prevent pretty much counterinsurgency. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, is, what does that mean for us? It means that the police are there perceiving the general population, especially black people, as potential insurgents that need to be oppressed and have their leadership and their wealth taken out of that community. I mean, think about all the people that are imprisoned and, and it's providers, it's mothers, it's fathers, it's daughters, it's sons. And, and not only that, but it, it's, it's a group of people, it's such a wealth of people in the prime of their life. Because let's be real, the majority of people that are criminalized and taken and imprisoned are young people. Mm-hmm. So it's literally this force of people that are enforcing and maintaining a system that is unequal and oppressive and, and fascist and fascist at this point. Definitely. And then to tie it back into Long Beach and like this like concrete relationship here. I mean, after the resurgence of uh, the KKK in the early 20th century with the birth of the nation, uh, I didn't know this until recently. Well, I knew that Woodrow Wilson played this, the movie at the White House, the birth of, birth of the nation, and said it was like really good, basically. But I didn't know this. They renamed Wilson High School here, got renamed after him following that. So that's, I'm not going to say a fun fact, but an interesting Long Beach fact. That's revealing. That's revealing. Very revealing. Because this was this was the culture in Long Beach in the 20s, right? Like the temperance movement was clashing with like boot bootleggers and kind of created this weird and being in a modern day like Christian fundamentalist evangelical system. And this will sound familiar. They were portraying themselves as like the real Americans and America for Americans. Ha! And this is when they started to do things like redlining and racial covenants and made Lakewood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned that shit in a DSA meeting. Um, I actually blew my mind seeing some of those Lakewood fucking come to Lakewood and be white. Wait, what? (laughs) Carrying on to today, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I just want to bring this up. Yo, they were like the Klan headquarters on East Anaheim Street, and they used to have cross burnings at Recreation Park, like in the 20s? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's wild. We could could go, we could easily go take a field trip there. (sighs) Holy shit. No, there's no sign for that. <laughs> right? Uh, no, no plaque. Well, like, so this isn't just speculation. <laughs> this isn't just speculation, right? Like, there, like, there is legitimate documentation yeah. of the, of the 
police or sorry, the KKK recruiting police. So like in 1922, a KKK officer literally told the Daily Telegram because they were not embarrassed by this, that the Ku Klux Klan is one of the purest, noblest and cleanest, most Christian, most patriotic organizations that have ever come to existence. Wait, wait, you're talking about the GOP party or the Ku Klux Klan? Come on, Vic. You haven't read Dinesh D'Souza that it was uh, leftism that started the KKK and the Democrats? Cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. So, like, we got law enforcement, the history of, like, LBPD law enforcement that are straight up fucking ties to the KKK, documented ties to the KKK. We're talking about all these monuments. I'd love a fucking Red Cross burning in Recreation Park like an eternal flame so people could drive by and see a huge cross burning and like hey what's that oh come over here and let's talk about this This is the ties of the kkk to lbpd documented for everybody to read i i want to see monuments like that you know and i wouldn't mind monuments like that because i would just some sort of reckoning needs to happen until that happens we're gonna keep getting shit like this because now there's been two shady hangings that happened in the high desert in Victorville, and in Palmdale. And we don't know what's going on. For a little bit of context, the high desert is about a couple hours north from Long Beach, and everything is all spread out. Everything is spread out. It's huge plains, and it's a desert. So when people show up, I mean, when people get found hanging, it's not like it's a big city and it could easily be found um, investigated. So the man who was killed has been identified as like a family attorney, by the family attorney as Karan Jamal Boone. He's believed to be the half-brother of Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller was the man who, found, who was found hanging, and Jamal now is dead. We don't know exactly what happened. What makes this particularly suspicious is LA County sheriffs declared Robert Fuller's hanging like before they even investigated as like not suspicious. They declared it a suicide already, which is weird because I don't know many people that can haul themselves up on a rope 10 feet in the air to hang themselves. And more importantly, it is also very weird that they just randomly shot his half-brother a week later. That's pretty coincidental. Damn. And, you know, you know, L.A., the L.A., you know, even Palmdale, right? There's only, like, what, a million people there? Yeah. And, you know, okay, so the deputies say they follow the car, they try to make a traffic stop, then the suspect opened the door and began shooting at cop. Yo, he had a seven-year-old in the fucking car with him. I don't care what kind of craven monster you claim to be. Nobody shoots with just a kid in a car. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. They're trying to fucking paint this man as some sort of monster when that's just not the case. Wow. It's fucking, it's mind-blowing. That's, that's re- yeah. it's insane. And it says here that like, the gunfire was captured on nearby surveillance video obtained by CBS LA. Here's the crazy thing. The cops literally right after, okay, actually cut that. Never mind. I'm, I'm thinking of the shooting that happened with the security guard in. Oh, when they broke all the cameras, When they broke all the cameras. See, they do so much shit like this. Exactly. It's like hard to even keep it straight. <laughs> you know, like they're are always doing like a fucking oh, war crime. Oh, they, Oh, they don't, they don't collect evidence. They destroy evidence. This harkens me back to Fred Taft. He was killed in broad daylight and they didn't even they investigated it. But only once Black Lives Matter came to canvas the neighborhood. So there's there's so many instances where the, the police are intentionally negligent or or, or suspect. Right. And, and who's going to and they're responsible for investigating themselves. Right. These recent hangs and especially the one in the desert. Like if you're a depressed person, 
you're like, all right, I'm going to go get in my car and drive, you know, two hours into the desert. No, I don't. I don't know. I find that hard to believe. You know, there's just I mean, obviously, there's so many details that are hard to believe in the history of policing make, you know, makes me, you know, hey, I mean, we were just talking about how LBPD was had many members in the KKK. So like and I, I struggle with trying to be like too nihilistic and too radical with my views. But like people 20 years from now, I'll be reading this and be like, yeah, the fucking cops are hanging people. What the fuck? Why will you guys do? How come no one did something about it? Like it was obvious. This organization that has this history, two black men got found hanging from trees. We all know what that is. But yet, society just keeps trucking along, moving forward, and especially in the high desert, to cause this type of disruption we could do in a city takes so much more effort, labor, and people power that like, just by their mere geographical location makes it hard for them to fight back. Well, you know, we could do a whole episode on this because it's a massive topic, of course. But when we're talking about lynchings, there's a perception in especially white and mainstream society that the lynchings of the past, I'm talking like the 20th, like 20th and like late 19th century were like shameful events that like at the time were some like, you know, it was the KKK, man, and they're really radical. But I, I went to the Peace and Justice Memorial in Alabama and really great. And it talked about the history of the fact that like these were public affairs and events. And sure, they're a little more the police or whoever's doing this is a little more hush hush about it. But like this, these used to be like, you know, like a concert, like this was well attended, well respected things that nobody got in trouble for. Yeah. Bring your kids. That's vile. Literally, vile. literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's hard because we don't know. But like we do know. We have the history, we have the context, we know what this organization is, we know their links to the KKK in recent past. So, like, we can't just be Pollyannish about it. Like, there's a possibility that the cops are hanging motherfuckers in Victorville in Palmdale, straight mm-hmm. up. And we gotta, like, say it and look into it. Yeah. yeah. So, to tie this in a little bit, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, abolition of policing versus reform and like, you know, holding police accountable in certain ways. So one of the only ways that like you can actually in this society do anything to a police department is sue them in civil court. There's a lot of immunities for officers personally, but ah. in Long Beach, a new report came out from for the LBC, which is doing some great journalism uh, that there is a turns out Janine Pierce, the elected got the info released about how much money has been paid out with litigation over the past 10 years. Ooh, what's the numbers? Be sure you're sitting down for this one, Vic, because you're not going to yeah. like it. Uh, it's 31 million fucking dollars, dude. It's 31 million dollars in 10 years. Uh, yeah. It's like the whole library's budget. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's 29.6. Total amount of tax dollars spent by the city of Long Beach in settlements uh, and verdicts from LBPD misconduct. Oh, I'm sorry, y'all. I'm sorry. This is only since 2014. Jesus. That's like six years? Yeah. Six years. And, and it's a double price, too. It's a double extraction. Because really, these are settlements related to people getting killed, people mm-hmm. being brutalized. And then, and then we pay again. Yep. Well, I mean, because here's the thing. Let's say you're a family that sues and you get the settlement. Like, good. You deserve the money. Yes. But at the same time, it's like it doesn't come out of the PD's budget. It doesn't come out of their pensions. It comes out of our taxpayer money. Most of this comes from like some secret like fund that the mayor has. This is not even like a line, a budget line item. 
to secret money to basically give hush money after the cops fucking broke the law. Because mm-hmm. a lot of this is settled. A lot of these cases get settled so that nobody ever talks about it. They get settled. Be- yeah, and everyone signs NDAs to keep the money. Blah, blah, blah. Fucking A. And to be clear, all respect to the families, like this is the only like recourse they have. But it's insane that the city's just like, we've, we've accepted this as a status quo that we're just dumping money. This police department is so violent, we have to like fund this. And again, this is not a problem of Long Beach PD. This is a problem of the police. This is why we are screaming to defund the police. This is why I'm an abolitionist taking part in an abolitionist movement to abolish the police. Like, these are the things that we are talking about. It's right there in front of your face. And keep talking bullshit, LB City Council. Keep talking bullshit. Like, yo, there will be more fucking language of the unheard. There will be. And that's what's going to keep happening. And I really, truly feel like at some point, we, America has reached a breaking point. We had such a boom after World War II. So much fucking prosperity that my parents could come here as fucking immigrants from Haiti and have the most fucking privileged life to even see themselves not part of the fucking black American experience because they've risen above it. They grab their bootstraps, put the bootstraps on, own homes, send their kids to college. But no, look where we are. We are still fucking here. And the problem is all across the country, every single police department. So therefore, it's a cultural problem. And reforms cannot change that. It just can't. No, it cannot. Oh. And, and it's, it's, it's killing us. Because, I mean, think about all... This is a secret budget, right? What other kind of budgets are we not privy to? Like, I, I, I've seen the pictures. Like, pretty much the, the general operating budget, which we get, to a, we get to affect technically, you know, that's a small part of the complete budget of, of Long Beach, right? So it's what other budgets really are there and that, that is just, you know, could really be helping communities as opposed to paying off paying blood money for the crimes that cops commit. Well, let's put this in perspective, right? So the, the out-the-door costs, including court and legal fees and like not including city staff time, which is like millions of dollars, but we're talking about $31.5 million on these settlements, uh, total general funds, $265 million. The Health and Human Services Department, which is the thing that's like supposed to address, I don't know, the massive pandemic that's crippled our entire economy and city, $3.4 million. Library, which does a billion things, $14.3 million. Oh. Like these settlements alone, not even the, the police budget, is eclipsing everything else. So, like, we got to pay off what people for what these cops did, but what mm-hmm. we know would help the community, like fucking teaching kids to read, having a place where young minds, young idle minds could go and enrich themselves, gets shut down because we got to pay. For this violent force. Get the fuck out of here. Like, no. Like, bottom line is just no. Like, that math don't add up. So, Vic, you were saying that this is a, a national problem. To give credence to that, I mean, Long Beach PD, we're talking about 30 millions of settlements since 2014. Minneapolis PD was 24 million. So they did less, and they're considering disbanding their fucking police. Wow. Keep in mind, Minneapolis has the same amount of residents as us. It's a good analogy. Copy yeah. that. Yeah. It's an That's excellent good. analogy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize this until recently. Man, you, you look at it comparatively, and it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what is it? What are the, all the national figures? I'm sure it's astronomical. I'm sure it's astronomical. Hey, Jordan, you came up with the number of how much a cop costs us per year, right? Oh, yes. I don't think it was in the, for the 
LBC thing, but somebody posted a breakdown of the police budget, right? And they were trying to get into like, what is this budget spent on? Most of it was, most of it was spent on salaries and benefits. And I thought, okay, well, I know that cops are getting paid a lot of overtime, right? Like some of them are making 100K. How much could this be? So there's like 900 sworn officers in the city. There's like 200 staff people. I did the math. And if you divide the total salaries and benefits by the amount of sworn officers and staff, which is like 1,100, uh, you get $186,000 per person. And keep in mind, staff don't have as good benefits as the cops. So each cop is like a almost $200,000 of pay and benefits per year. It's like two and a half public employees. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible amount of money. I mean, it's honestly one of the most, probably what? the most well-compensated job in this entire city. What's, what's minimum wage? 15 bucks an hour. What's that, 30,000 a year? I think, I think it's like 27 or something. Yo, you could have, a, with that money, you could have a public safety officer without a gun and then a well-trained social worker, and that's your fucking tag team duo that goes out there and takes care of the community. You got a team of two people. One is trained with a gun. I mean, the gun's in the car. The other person doesn't have a gun, and that's that. And there's no cops. And it costs the same amount of money, and you double the amount of people out there. Like, literally, that, that just came up off the top of my head. Off the top of my head, I just came up with that. And I'm no fucking economist or city planner or anything. That's math and arithmetic. What the fuck? Uh, right? And if I'm yeah, wrong, please yeah, tell me I'm yeah. wrong. You know, it doesn't take a fucking financial expert to figure out that, like, this is an incredible amount of money. And, you know, this has been anecdotal, but I, I hear that actually, this is ironic, but LBPD doesn't actually pay as highly as other departments. So they complain about not being able to hire the best Jeez. people because they don't pay as much as, like, Liquid PD. They can, oh my God. So, so they're like, we need more money to hire better, better trained people to kill the community just the same way, same way. Because better training does not translate to less police violence. It does not do that. Nope, it does not. And just to give a little preview of the future, the, a lot of these suits are about wrongful shootings, police brutality, all that type of stuff, uh, wrongful death in custody, that type of thing. But to give a preview of the future, there is a suit going through about a woman who lost part of her finger because the police fired the less than lethal, which we know is a bullet coated in rubber round at the peaceful protest on the 31st of May. So like they, they're already generating new fucking lawsuits, dude, based on the protests against their own violence. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah, I also feel really bad for this person because they were like just at the protest holding their phone and the, they shot one of those rubber-coated bullets out of a grenade launcher, and it, it took off part of her fucking finger. That's how fast those things go. Uh, yeah, and let's talk about less, less lethal. Less lethal doesn't mean it's not lethal. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of evidence around these rubber bullets causing severe maiming, yep. and they can kill people. Yeah, it's that corporate language of turning fucking speak into, like, you know, not actually what it is. You know what, y'all? Listen. These less than lethal rounds, as they like to call them, if they really think they're so safe, then, hey, are any cops or any city council members going to volunteer to have someone shoot them with one of these things from 20 I'd feet away? see that. Hey, yeah. man, if you're going to stand there and you get shot with it and you say it's fine, I'll believe you. Keep using them. Mm -hmm. Fuck, I ain't going to believe them. Screw that.
That's been a good podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is Vic. My name is Miles. I'm Jordan. And don't forget to ask yourself, why am I talking?